Good morning, Chapel family. I have a pro tip for those of you here that are over the age of 40. Do not play football in flip-flops. Okay? There's that. That's my only pro tip that I have regarding sports. Um, I played football in flip-flops, and one leg went one way, another leg went another way. And then my wife, because we're coming up on my three-year anniversary of my basketball injury, said, what did you do to yourself? And I said, nothing. Because I was more scared of her than whatever was popping inside of my knee. People are telling me to go to the doctor. You guys, I don't need to go to the doctor. Our live stream, Brett, said, if you don't get this taken care of, you could have knee injuries for the rest of your life. Just shows me that I'm teaching improper theology. If he thinks the rest of my life, I'm going to have a bum knee. Brett, the longest I could have a bum knee for is possibly 50 years. And that's if I live a very long time, um, which you never see tall people over the age of really 78. So I'm just saying that's what it is. It's what it is. It's what it is. Get to be with the Jesus before y'all be jealous. Um, open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. If you're new, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Um, we are walking through 1 John to be faithful to the Lord and to ask questions. What does it mean to be light in the midst of a dark world? Um, the world will always trend toward and tend toward darkness, and today is no different. We have a, a shortened service today because we have our annual meeting, and we should probably really change it because it always lands in December, which is just terrible timing, but it'll be a quick meeting today at 1015. Before that meeting, I want to talk about the fact that this is the end of the world. The end of the world is coming. I'm sure if you grew up in church, you've probably heard some ideas of when the end was coming. When you were young children, did any of your pastors tell you, those of you who grew up in the church, did any of your pastors tell you, we are in the last days? Anyone? Okay. So we're in the last days, or they might say that we're in the last chapter of history. It was argued, and it has been argued from the time of Christ to now, that we are in the last hour, the last page, the last paragraph. And when you look around, it makes sense. Even if you remove whatever political perspective you have, if you just look at the things that are happening in the world that God said would happen in the world, if you look at the type of things that are happening in God's church, and that's what we're looking at today in 1 John 2, verse 15 to the end of the chapter. We're going to hustle through this because I want us to be aware that the end is coming. Every time I have a pain in my life, it reminds me the end is coming. Every time I watch a show with an amazing end, it reminds me that the end of the world is coming. Uh, I recommend a movie. I don't recommend movies a lot, but I tell people if you love something, you want to share it because it makes you feel like that's what evangelism is. You, if, if you love something, you want to share it. And there's this movie that I watched, and it was a throwback. It's called 8-Bit Christmas. Oh, man. And I already convinced a couple people to watch it, and they were a little bit mad at me. But if you grew up in the 80s, this movie will rock your world. You will look at the sweaters and the moon boots and stand in awe. If you don't know what moon boots are, this movie, uh, you'll still like it because my kids liked it. But turtlenecks, J.C. Penney's, people inside of malls, it was a different era. A different era. But when it all comes to an end in the movie, it's one of those movies that I actually appreciated the ending, tied together well. And now God's going to tell us and show us what's going to happen in the end. And he's going to give us a warning right here. 
This is a warning of what happens before. Before we get to the end, this is the warning of what will happen in God's church. So I want you to listen and hear if you are in these like I am myself. Verse 15. We're going to read verse 15 to 17 and pray and continue on. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Lord, we are about to embark from this passage into the next, looking at the end of the world and the desires that come and the antichrists that will rise up. And these are all high things, Lord. It seems like they're at the cosmic level of spirituality. But I know that as we move into December, there are other pieces of humanity Lord, the lonely that are in here, the broken and the hurting. Lord, there are those in here who are fearful of the future to come, whether it's this month or next year. There are people with unanswered questions. There are people who have such pressing issues for today that maybe thinking about the end of the world uh, is just too much for them. So I pray that you would be our God in the midst of our daily pressures, but in light of the heavenly end that will one day come and rip the sky open. Lord, we pray this morning that we would be hearers of your word. Forgive our sins, for they are many, and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Love the world. And the end of time is people are going to love the world. And they're going to have the pride of life and the desires. I, I recently mocked pastors who use Greek words all the time, um, but I'm going to do it right now so you can mock me later. It's, and, and I'll just tell you, the word desires, and I'm not going to say the Greek word because now I sound pretentious, and I don't want to appear pretentious even though I probably am. It means an over-desire. See, we think of sin and the pride of life as these like evil things that we do. If you ask an average person what's a sin, they're going to toss some things out that we've all said are sin. If I were to ask someone and put them on the spot and say, what's a sin, Bree? <laughs> Lying's a sin. Yeah, there's a whole verse about it. Revelation, Revelation, 21.8, 21.8. Liars burn in hell, liars burn in hell. Burn, burn, burn. You didn't learn that at your church? I taught that to my children yesterday. No. Um, lying is a sin. What else is a sin? Uh, let's pick somebody. Boston. Murder. Red rum. Murder's a sin. Okay, we'll do one more. Naomi, what's a sin? Lusting. Lusting. I had one of the weirdest conversations as a pastor that I might have ever had this morning. It starts like this, and if you're this person, don't look at me. You'll give away who you are. 
Pastor Ryan, are we friends? Yes, I would consider us friends. Why didn't you tell me that I was dressed like a stripper? And I thought of doing something pastoral, but um, unfortunately, I watch TikTok sometimes. So I said, somebody come get her. And then I stopped singing. See, I gave some jokes for the middle-aged and elderly with moon boots, and that was just for you teenagers and 20-somethings. You know, the thing about sin, lust, murder, lying, we know these ones. But what if I were to tell you that the Bible teaches sin in such a nuanced and incredibly painful way? The, the word that you see is desire here really should be translated in a lot of in the context of a lot of passages, as over-desire. It's when you take, and, and we really emphasized this the first couple of years that I was here, when you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing, that is then a bad thing. And you could take good things, like marriage, but if you make marriage the ultimate thing in your life, that is a bad thing, a.k.a. a sinful thing. You can take parenting, and that is a good thing, but if you make parenting the ultimate thing in your life, the thing that you live for, the thing that gives you a sense of identity and worth, then that becomes a very bad thing, a very sin-filled thing. God wants to be the ultimate thing in our lives, and as the end comes, what we will do is we will diversify our sin portfolios. We will make many things the ultimate thing that we live for, and in doing that, we will be turning away from God. I read one of the greatest articles this week um, about Joel Osteen's church. I hope that some of you saw this. I thought, this is brilliant. Somebody was stealing from their offerings. That's not brilliant. Don't do that. Someone should have said theft is bad. Someone was stealing from their offerings, and they were putting offering envelopes in a wall in the bathroom. And they went to remodel the church down there in Houston, and they found over $600,000 in a bathroom wall from church offerings. So I'm just going to say up front, like if you really need money and you have to steal, I'll let you steal two things at the chapel. You can steal Bibles anytime you want, and you could steal money out of the offering, but just ask me first so I know who's stealing and how much we're giving you. But if you need money, let me know. If you're a teenager, that's not an invitation just to steal without asking me. Um, just because I can't walk doesn't mean I'm not patient or have a fast car with a sturdy bumper. See, as the end comes, we're going to have pride of our life. We're going to have the desires of our flesh. I shared last week my great failure in trying to eat healthy is that I can eat healthy from 6 a.m. until about 8.30 p.m. I could have all the egg whites and turkey and everything, but at 8.30 p.m., my self-controlometer turns off and ice cream sandwiches and chocolate ice cream look amazing. Last night, I thought I was going to be strong, and I made Silas a banana split, and we had a scoop of cookies and cream. Sorry, babe, we didn't tell you he stole that. And a scoop of chocolate with the bananas and the whipped cream and the caramel sauce and the chocolate sauce. And I thought, I'm not even going to have a bite of this because I'm so self-controlled, strong as an oak. And I did tell myself, but you know what? I should at least lick the spoon before I rinse it off. So before I licked the serving spoon, the ice cream spoon, I dug it in deep and got the equivalent of like a double scoop. And I said, I'm going to lick this spoon clean for my self-control. The desires of the flesh include things that we see, and it's, it's inevitable. 
You might say, well, how can I avoid desiring the things of the world? Maybe you're like me and there's certain cars that catch your eye. Maybe you have your own thing. Like right now, as we're continuing to build our house, I used to be envious of like certain houses. Like, oh, I like this in a house. I like that in a house. Now that I've been mostly homeless uh, for eight months, give or take, nine months, I just want anyone's house. Like, I'll take anything. It's, it, you know you've reached a bad point when you go on Zillow to look at your dream homes and you see like a 1,500 square foot jalopy with no windows and you're like, I'll take it. The desires of the eyes are things that aren't necessarily bad, but we make them something that we put our hope in. And this is going to become more and more prevalent as we get closer to the end, where, where we will replace the things that God ought to be for us with temporary things, temporal things, earthly things, whether it's a relationship or a possession or a status. The Bible has a lot to say about this. These verses are in the Bible app if you've got the notes. It's in the additional scripture section. Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I think too often we read that and we say, God, give me the desires of my heart, and we forget the first part. Delight yourself in the Lord. Make yourself happily in love with the Lord. Be overjoyed with the Lord, and as you do that, he will give you the, the desires of your heart. This happens because as you press into him for your worth, significance, etc., your heart becomes aligned with that, and your heart begins to desire those things. David said famously, one thing have I desired of the Lord, to dwell in his presence. Now, we could do the legalistic Larry turn, and I could say, everyone must only desire to be in the Lord's presence, and if you don't, you're a failure. I'm going to give you some good news. You are a failure. You can turn and hope to desire and dwell in the Lord in one hand, and then in the next minute, you'll walk away spiritually, mentally, physically. I'm, I'm biased because I've been nostalgic from 8-bit Christmas, but it got me listening to all the worship songs that I started with. And everyone thinks that the worship songs they started with are some of the best ones. So if you ask some of you in here who were alive in the 1800s, you're like, amazing grace, boom, best. But if you ask those of us who are like me in the late 1990s when Christ called us into his family, if I say a name like Sonic Flood, it just gives you the shivers of joy. We sang a song called In the Secret, In the Quiet Place, a thousand times. But maybe even more than that, we sang a song that I love that I wish, uh, actually, I, I don't have to wish, I'm the pastor. Hey, Ree, can we sing Better is One Day? Remember that song? Yeah. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Here's why I love it. Because I want it to be true. Here's why it's hard to sing. Because do I always believe that that's true? Do I live like that's true? That better is one day God, in your courts than a thousand days elsewhere. And essentially the, the image that the psalmist is writing is better is one day than all the days elsewhere. Because there are questions that we have about the end. There are people who will speak human wisdom and try to write out parts of the Bible. There are people who will talk about the end and heaven and hell and delete the parts that they don't like. But the Bible is very clear that these people are not 
not of God. Verse 18, children, it is the last hour. Which hour, fam? The last one. And as you have heard, the Antichrist, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, which means they were where? The Antichrists. With us. If they went out from us, the Antichrists were with us at some point. They were in our gatherings. And they went out from us. It's so funny to me how we always think of the Antichrist as an out there person. But the Bible's clear that the, the Antichrists are the, some of the in here persons. There's this big movement right now that really grates my soul with a cheese grater. It's the Christian deconstruction, reconstruction movement. And I don't, it's not that I don't appreciate people asking questions. I think that for the most part, believers land in camps where we don't ask enough questions, and when our faith is challenged, we haven't found enough answers because we didn't ask the questions. But this whole deconstruction movement, and it's just in some of the worlds of like YouTube and podcasts, where people basically look at their faith and they say every bad thing that happened to them in Christianity, and this is why they no longer believe, or why that they've changed their views on things like hell or heaven or, or if God would do this or that, and they make up their own rules. They give in to the desire for their own theology, for their own system, for their own religion, but they don't see it. And this is why it's interesting to me that antichrists come from within. They will know our language. They will know the way that we speak. There are many what, what I would call heresies. Martin Luther, the German reformer, I loved how he wrote. Nobody writes like him anymore. If they did, they would just be called mean. But if another pastor posted an article, Martin Luther would call him names that we can't say in modern churches. And he would write books and name people. This is wrong. This is against the word. This is evil. There are many deceptions in the church that are coming out of the church right now. I'm going to mention a few of them. And this is just so that if you hear them, I want them to put something in your mind that, you, that tells you, I need to go to the Bible to learn about what the Bible says in regards to this topic. The easy ones, the low-hanging fruit, are things like the prosperity gospel. People that say, if you come to Christ, he will answer all of your desires and give you all of your dreams, and you'll have money and wealth and health. Well, I've been in Christ for 20 years, and I don't have money. I can't go three years without a semi-significant injury. My eyes are fading. I'm doing that thing that I mocked my mother for not five years ago when you need to read something, and you squint and hold it farther away, like that's where the magic happens, to see something. Is this where the magic happens? See, it's... The prosperity gospel is, is hard because it seems like it makes sense, that like God wants what's best for you. And, and here's the thing about the prosperity gospel. They're actually, they actually have a lot of things right in content, but they have a lot of things wrong in timing. So you will have more than you ever fathomed, but it may not be in this life. It may be. Some of you will be blessed and given money, and you'll be very healthy, and you'll live a long time, whether you count that as a blessing or not. But we will have more in the next life than we could possibly fathom. 
we will understand and be embraced more by God's eternal love in the next life than we could possibly fathom. I will no longer require squinting in the next life. In the next life, I can play football in flip-flops while dribbling a basketball. In the next life, I hope that ice cream sandwiches come in a low-carb, low-calorie format. But this prosperity gospel is dangerous. If they teach you that God is here to just dump things on you in this life, I'll tell you what Jesus told you. This is what Jesus said. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Expect to suffer for my sake because I suffered. Coming to Christ, I can promise you this, and this is from the Bible, that you will suffer, that it will be difficult, that you will be persecuted, that you will have inner turmoil about right and wrong, that you will feel pressured to have over-desires for these other things in life instead of for Christ. But I can tell you the good news in that is that Jesus knows who you are and where you struggle and will love you each step of the way through it. See, the antichrists that come, they're going to teach things like the prosperity gospel. They're going to teach things like universalism, which just means that everyone ends up going to heaven. doesn't matter what you do. God's going to weave it all together. Except for that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, you can disagree with me. If you're here and you're like, I don't like that version of Christianity, that's fine. Just know that it's not just me you're disagreeing with. I am just delivering mail that came from Jesus' mouth. So if you don't like that Jesus is the only way, then you need to take that up with Jesus. And if you want to talk to me about it, I honestly would more than be, would be more than willing to sit down and talk about it. Because it is a difficult thing to grasp. Wide is the path that leads to destruction, and narrow is the way that the righteous will walk on. See, these antichrists will teach the prosperity gospel. They'll teach universalism. There's the New Age movement that fuses all the religions together. Um, there's what I think is probably the most dangerous aspect of Christianity to, today is probably the undercurrent of legalism that robs the gospel. The gospel is good news. That's all that word means is good news. That Jesus Christ, God, came in the flesh lived a perfect life that you could not live, died the death you deserve to die, was buried in the ground on the third day, rose again, conquering sin and death forever on your behalf. You believe in that, you put your trust in that, you put your hope in that, and you are saved. The legalism is its what I do on Facebook. I fetter out legalists because I'm friends with mostly christian people. So I'll post something that I know will annoy someone. And it and here's how you can tell if someone has the current of legalism in them. And it's even me at times. We love the law to command people what they ought to do and what is right to do. And, and here's where you can really spot legalism. If you push something out there into the world in a conversation or a post about God's radical grace and how he alone saves people, inevitably, within a matter of 1.3 minutes, some Christian will add, but this, and then you have to do this. For example, a recent post of mine said, no amount of discipleship can turn a goat into a sheep. Only God does that. That was my whole post. Because there's a bunch of goats in the church nowadays. Goats are people who are 
walking around with the herd, but they don't hear Jesus' voice. Jesus says, my sheep, my sheep hear my voice. They know my voice. If you're a sheep of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, there, there doesn't have to be a compelling argument. There's going to be a drive within you, and it may go up and down and wane and, and rise, but there will be an undercurrent drive that says, be with Jesus, talk to Jesus, lean on Jesus, love Jesus, sing to Jesus, tambourine for Jesus. But if you're a goat, we can have a lot of goats in the church. They can go to Bible studies, but they're a goat. They're not growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They're a goat. And there's no amount of discipleship that can turn a goat into a sheep. So I, that's all I posted. I said, only God does that. And I knew it was going to trigger some people that love discipleship. I get it. Discipleship is important. The Bible says, go make disciples. Jesus says in his final, some of his final words, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He, he calls us to go do this thing. But we're the part that just goes and shares the news. We say, here's the news. And we wait and see if they're bleeding like a sheep or bucking like a goat. And then we walk to the next person. Here's the news of what God did in my life and what God can do in your life. You want your best life now full of suffering and persecution? Come to Christ with me. And people inevitably start saying, but discipleship is important. And I would reply, I didn't say it wasn't important. I said, only God can take an unbelieving person and make a believing person. Only God can take someone who's spiritually dead and make them spiritually alive. Only God can take a person who is his enemy and make them his son or daughter. Only God does that. But Antichrist will say, no, there's any way in that you want. Legalists will say, come to Christ and here's the rules and if you don't follow them, we kick you out. And we may not have as strict of rules as perhaps other churches, but we all have them. Every church, we're drawn to legalism because it gives us a sense of control. Legalism gives us the ability to posture ourselves in a place of superiority and say, I know what's right, I have the moral high ground, and you are wrong. But if you're anything like me, if you've lived for more than five minutes, you realize that some things that you were once so sure of, now you look at and they appear as folly then you would say, well, how can you be sure of anything that you're reading? And this is where the Bible is, where I love the Bible. There's got to be a standard somewhere. And everyone picks a standard in this world. All 7.9 billion people, however many there are, we all choose a standard by which we live. The majority of the world has picked some ancient literature or historical teacher. People that have forsaken the religious structures all they've done to create a standard is that they've made up their own rules that they like. And if you don't know what that means, it means that they've put themselves in the place of God of their lives. This is what antichrists do. They confuse, they deflect away from the truth of God and his word. You don't have to come here and believe in the word in its entirety right now. I know we're all in different places, but I will tell you, we're going to keep reading the Bible keep teaching the Bible, keep challenging each other with the Bible because God left us the Bible for such things. These antichrists, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. If they were sheep, they would have stayed sheep, but they weren't. They went out that it might become plain that they are not 
of us, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. You have had God touch down on your life, anointed. God said, mine, mine. He writes these things, not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know the truth, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. See, if, if you deny Jesus as the Christ, you've denied the Father. If you've denied the Father, you've denied the one who created the world. And you are, by some weird providential way in this life, God gives us the ability to walk through life and just say dumb things. My prayer for you is that as you see antichrists rise up, you would turn to God's word. As you see people opening doors to things that are not of the Bible, that you would press into the Bible and remember God's standard, that you would resist the temptation to make a standard for yourself of what is right and wrong, good and evil, and rest in the glorious grace of Jesus. Because, family, we are all far more broken than we realize. Like things in this life that I have that don't matter. <laughs> it's just shocking. The, uh, I really grinded a legalist recently. They were, we were doing one of these silly things where they um, say, if you were stranded on a desert island and you could only bring with you one thing, are you like, okay, I'm ready for this? And this is at a pastor's meeting, obviously, which I adore going to. Your Bible? Your wife? Or a fire starter? I thought for about half of a second. I thought, I'm not going to bring my wife um, because I w why would I want to subject her to a life on an island when I could just have a, a lot of quiet and peace over there? Um, just thinking to myself, I didn't, that's not what I was thinking. I just thought, I don't want her to have to be stuck with me, and then who's going to watch the kids? And the obvious pastoral answer, you know, that the holy Harry's and the legalistic Larry's want you to have is like, you bring the Bible. Like between your wife or your Bible or a fire starter. And I thought, well, if I bring the Bible, I'll die a lot sooner and just see Jesus because I won't have any fire to cook the food. If I bring my wife, um, I don't know what good that would do other than be self-serving. So I said, the fire starter. They said, you bring a fire starter over a Bible? I said, well, I already read the Bible. I know what's in it enough that I already don't obey. So I could just take all the things I've read in the Bible that I don't obey and work on those things until I get rescued or as I'm eating some nice fish on a fire that I make with my fire starter. Well, what a, don't you need to learn and grow more in the Bible? Yeah, but the danger that we're running into at this point, at this juncture of church in the West, is that half the things that we teach one another, we are already disobedient to the 90% that came before. So I'm trying to drive the simple truths deep down. 
that as the Antichrists come, they will be people who will make up their own standards. They will be former pastors and current pastors, former religious people and current religious people, who will say, in the name of God, this is what is right and wrong, and it will be in direct contradiction to something in the Bible. The problem that I have is that I've read the Bible, and I continue to read the Bible, and I continue to do stupid things that the Bible says not to do. Don't lie. Have we told lies in the last five minutes to ourselves? Have we lied going into Christmas? Is it acceptable to tell white lies to hide a gift for your children? Is it acceptable to lie like we just call them white lies? God's up in heaven like, yes, I've categorized lies by color. The white ones are okay, which nowadays seems racist now that I say it out loud. <sighs> lust. How are we doing with lust out there, fellas? It's a little easier, I guess, in the fall time when the boots are high and the scarves are tight. Or ladies, how are you doing with the lust? We always just assume that guys lust like women are born these sexual saints. We all need Jesus. So the good news is this. As we set our own standards in this world, you'll see them pull away from God. Just a degree at first, but as you get farther away, it becomes miles. I'm pleading to you, I'm, I'm begging you, to as you look around and see the world crumbling, to not move into despair and try to not merge religion and Christianity with political power. There, is, there are people who will say something like, God, save America. It seems so odd to me, because Jesus already wrote the Bible. And it says God came, sent his son to die for what? America? For God so loved the world. Lord, save America. Jesus is like, did it. Turn. Follow. Let's do this. So I know what you mean when you say save America. We want America to turn back to the righteousness that it had in the 50s, back when racism was just common. And in sore fronts, is that what we're going back to? How about instead of turning back to the 50s or the 1800s or whatever year you want before antibiotics existed and in the, in the, the flu had killed everybody. How about we say, Lord, bring us into your kingdom more. Help us to remember that we are your citizens and not this world's citizens. It's not bad to love the country that you're in, but it's bad when you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing. Lord, give us the strength to never deny Jesus. Lord, give us the strength to see errors in the church, whether it's legalism or the emerging church or universalism or the prosperity gospel, and to run from these things into your word. And if you have an issue with one of those things, please, by all means, go into the word and let's read it together. I'm not here to say that I have it figured out and, and you do not, and neither should you to others. Together we are standing on one foundation. There's a group of us that are doing this Bible study. It's called Uncommon Men. Did you pick all these? It's uncommon men. I hate it. 
It's a devotion in the YouVersion app. I like the conversation starters. I hate it for a couple of reasons. It shows me who the people are who are the most faithful in the group. Jay gets up every morning and writes his comments at four in the morning. He is the holiest. Derek usually wakes up second, lamenting that he is not the holiest. That there is this great battle in the Bible app devotion with all these guys from the chapel and elsewhere. And um, Derek, for lack of a better term, is the Georgia team of it all, right? Didn't they just lose some big game? They were supposed to win, right? Who likes Georgia? I don't know anything about any of these teams, you guys. But I'll tell you what. Today, when the Steelers lose again, you know, I'm going to be sad about this. I'm going to be sad about men slightly younger than me tackling themselves, cussing all over a field because they wear a certain color shirt and they didn't get a ball across a line more times than the other team. Now, granted, any Ravens fans need Christ, and that is an abhorrent heresy if you follow the Ravens or the Patriots. Thankfully, I've run most of the Patriots fans out of the chapel by the grace of God. Um, but why am I going to get sad? Because I'm putting an over-desire on a football team. Why do I get discouraged when I hurt my leg? Because I put an over-desire on my ability to have a knee that can run around. Well, don't you want to play with your kids? And do Yeah, great, sure. But these things are so small. When will my house be done? Probably never. I'm just going to put a sleeping bag in there soon. When my house is done, I'm going to say something like this. I can almost predict it. Thank you, God, that my house is done and that I still love my mother and stepfather and my children who are about to murder each other every other day. And I'm going to treat my house like it's some kind of savior, as if when my children go into the new house, their sin will magically vanish and they will get along like sweet little angels. We know this isn't true, but we functional function this way my prayer is that as the end comes we would stand more and more on the word and let go of these desires that the world tells us will satisfy us because if we get caught up in those that's one one bite of one fruit that leads us away from god's standard and into someone else's and i pray that we would not but if we do know that christ just in the very beginning of this chapter john says i, I write to you so that you may not sin but if you do sin, there is an advocate, Jesus Christ, who stands before the Father. It says, God, he's mine. I died for this, this guy, this sin repeater, this liar, luster, murderer, anger. And that's the hope that we have. It's not in how good we are, but in how good he is. When the end comes, don't look to how good you are. Don't look to how amazing the church is or is not that you attend. Look to how good Christ is all of the time. Let's pray.